Joining us today is Tom Comerford. Uh, he's the director and technical manager at Supertex, uh, which specializes in consulting companies on content management uh, and publishing, most critically as it relates to strategic planning, architecture and design, content processing and training. Uh, they are deeply involved in different standards committees, and Tom himself is the co-secretary of the Oasis XLEAF 2.0 Standards Committee. Uh, for the translators listening, XLEAF, or a variation of it, is the basis by which most translation tools process file formats, uh, so you can translate them in your translation editor. The development of XLEAF 2.0 standard we'll be discussing today took place over the course of five years. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. Uh, from 2009 to 2014. As, the, as stated in the standard itself, the purpose of XLEAF 2.0 is to, quote, give any multilingual content owner a single interchange file format that can be understood by any localization provider using any conformant localization tool. The primary focus is on being a lossless interchange format. So in plain English, it's a rocking cool idea our industry is highly itemized. Most of the work is done by translators with their small businesses spread across the globe, some of whom are listening to this podcast. If all the major translation tools companies adopted XLEAF 2.0, translators who are used to working in a whole host of tools, cloud-based or otherwise, would be free to work in their tool of choice. Note to translators, uh, this has been around since 2014. Uh, most of all, it would be one less thing to worry about in a world that is complicated enough as it is. So, uh, we'll get into detail about some of the reasons for, for XLEAF 2.0 and what it means for translators. Uh, we'll try to talk about some of the golden nuggets uh, that are hidden inside of the XLEAF standard. So, Tom, uh, I read and skimmed the XLEAF 2.0 standard, uh, which is crazy and which you authored along with other members. Um, so it's clear that you care deeply about standards, uh, also in relation to your work with content management and DITA and, uh, and others at Supertext. Um, so the first question that I wanted to ask uh, is, why did you get involved with the, with the TC on XLEAF? Um, and why do you, wh where, where does your love for standards come from? Well, the love for standards comes from uh, the early days of, uh, of markup um, languages. Uh, there was an early standard called SGML that predates XML. It goes back to 1986. I was working at a company where the, uh, we had a, a vice president of the company who was a member of the International Standards Committee that was creating SGML. Uh, the company was a, a a, a computerized typesetting company in the days before desktop publishing was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> and, um, so, so SGML was this real cool way to to take a look at what we had traditionally been doing, typesetting a document and making it look right on the page, and saying what's the underlying structure and how can we capture that structural information with an eye towards computerized processing of the structure. So, for example, rather than specifying that a title is 24 point times New Roman bold, you know, and centered on the page, we identify it as a title. And it is a title, maybe a chapter title or something like that. And it is a title 
wherever we use it, but it may be formatted differently if we're presenting presenting it uh, on the internet or producing a PDF from it or wow. uh, or something like that. Uh, so, and that was the first time anyone had ever had ever done that, or well, again, this was this was you know before desktop publishing. It yeah, was yeah. also before internet. Um, kind of kind of the dark ages and people had been doing a variety of things uh there there was software that was um was able to do very good formatting uh and they all had their own proprietary internal markup there was wordstar and there was microsoft word in, in its early days and word perfect they all had their their own proprietary way of of um storing that structural information and the formatting information that worked for making it look good on the page. And uh, so SGML was the first attempt to create a standard that any organization could use. And this is part of the key of, of any standard is that it's open, accessible, available to anyone to use. Um, in the case of SGML, you needed to pay money for the specification. But other than that, it was an open standard. You didn't have to pay royalties to, to make use of it. It became the underlying language um, or the underlying linguistic or markup concept behind HTML when the internet and the World Wide Web um, uh, really took hold in the, the mid-90s. And then uh, later in the 1990s, it was supplanted by XML, which had its roots very strongly in the SGML community. SGML was, was a very large, elaborate standard that was maybe more than most companies needed. Uh, and, and this is one of those issues I think that we had in mind with the XLIF technical committee as well, especially in, in the move from XLIF 1.2, which actually dates mm -hmm. back to, I think, 2004, um, to version 2.0, which came out, which was officially approved as a standard in 2014, that there were some features there that not everyone necessarily wanted to implement or could implement or needed for their particular software. And, and so with XLIF, we adopted a modular approach uh, consistent with the kind of philosophy that you see with XML that, that um, uh, really made it much more usable than its, its predecessor, SGML. Right, right. So uh, related to the modular approach in XLIF 2.0, um, maybe it's a good moment to describe uh, how the the modular approach combined with the concept of the core um, keeps the format stable as it's interchanged between different tools, um, different translators, different companies. Um, mm -hmm. how, how, how exactly does it work in, in the plainest English possible? Okay, in, in, in simple terms, um... I think it can be useful to take a look at what happened between XLIF 1.2 and, and 2.0. Um, a lot of feedback from vendors, from users of the standard when, when version 1.2 existed, uh, informed the decisions that we used to, uh, to define XLIF 2.0. And we made the very difficult decision that XLIF 2.0 would not be backward compatible. So if you were already doing XLIF 1.2, if you already had baked that into your software, you basically needed to start over. Um, but what that allowed us to do was to create a core definition of XLIF, that if you're an XLIF compliant processor, you have 
support for these core features. You may also optionally uh, implement one or more of these modules. Um, and since it's an extensible standard, uh, you can also define your own module, um, you know, the, to, to meet the needs of your particular software application. Uh, what we get from that, I think, is the ability to go forward with future versions of the standard without having to give up backward compatibility. So we, we take some of those features that maybe were, were difficult to implement uh, or, or that many vendors didn't want to implement, and we make them optional. So there's a core that we can continue to build on and we can continue to enhance. But much of the growth of the standard, uh, we hope, will be in uh, various vendors creating modules, maybe contributing them back to the community that we can incorporate them into future versions of the standard. Um, I, I'm not really sure how the these things work, to be honest, but um, are companies required to contribute their their alterations back to the community or uh, or not? I guess they're not. No, they're not. Right. Um, we hope, especially if uh, a vendor uh, produces something that could be generally useful, uh, that doesn't necessarily give them a competitive advantage, that they, they will share it with the community. But I think a lot of vendors, you know, have the opportunity to create a competitive competitive advantage for their product, and can create their own modules that are excellent compliant, um, but that give them a, a marketplace advantage. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we have we have rules in Xlif about what you must do and what you should do if your processor doesn't understand a particular module or doesn't understand some um, some markup that um, if uh, if your processor encounters XLIF compliant markup that it doesn't specifically support, you pass that markup through to the, the next step of the process. You don't simply uh, drop it. Uh, right, right. So it, it allows the software to continue to be interoperable with other systems that, that maybe do support a particular module. Yeah. You know, when I was reading that, I just thought that was uh, really, really uh, smart uh, and pretty amazing. Um, so the, the decision about backward compatibility, you said it was a, a major decision. Um, do you think that the decision uh, to make XLEAF 2.0 not backward compatible um, has that slowed down its adoption uh, significantly, or um, or is it not uh, being adopted by all the vendors because uh, of other reasons? I think there are a mix of reasons. I'm not close enough to to many of the vendors to know exactly what their mm -hmm. their thinking is, um, and I can tell you, in, in fact, as we speak, we've just completed version 2.1, which is an incremental improvement on um, on version 2.0, it is completely backwards compatible. So anyone who's been working on XLIF 2.0 uh, uh, and implementation in their software will be able to move to 2.1 relatively easily. Um, but I, yeah, I think for vendors who uh, who, who made the commitment, who made the investment in implementing XLIF 2.0 or 1.2 rather, mm -hmm. uh, when they saw 2.0 come out, when they saw that it was going to be backwards compatible, then, you know, they, they could feel perhaps a sense of 
um, uh, you know, here we go again, or, you know, this is going to be another major effort and, and uh, they need to evaluate the, the business rationale for them behind making that kind of move. But I think in a lot of other cases, I think some vendors have been very slow to adopt it because, well, for, for a variety of reasons, one of which is that, that um, an open standard uh, prevents them from locking in customers with with a um, you know with their particular non-standard um, uh, software approach. Right. So, for example, if you have a, a, a translation memory that you built up and it's in a proprietary format, uh, the more years you spend building up that translation memory, the harder it is for you to move to some other platform. Um, what we're trying to accomplish with with this standard and what other standards bodies are also trying to accomplish is to give the user that kind of control where you can much more easily go from one system to another and have a reasonable expectation that that you know your work is going to be um, you know your content is going to be supported your workflows are going to be supported as they were before right and then the the vendors um, instead of competing based on um, who can lock up the most uh, customers um, then just compete on who's making the best uh, the best tools is is that a good exactly. way to put it yes in in fact i i did have one software vendor uh, confront me with with just that idea that um, you know, the, the idea that, uh, I, I don't really like you standards people coming at me and telling me how I have to do things. It feels like, um, you know, it, it feels like a dictatorship. And so, I mean, there's, there's a really good response to that. And I was as polite as I could be, but he has the option of becoming involved in the standards community. Right. And influence the direction of the standard if he wants. Um, his, his particular company had a proprietary approach and saw a standard approach as being a threat to that that base that they've built up. Right. Um, the reality is we we have um, the, the people on the standards community represent some of the tools vendors. We've had um, uh, IBM and Microsoft and SDL and Oracle over the years have. have been involved in various iterations of the, the development of the standard. Um, uh, you know, so we, we have good representation from some large and reputable companies mm-hmm. uh, involved in there. We also have some some uh, members of academia who are uh, are very influential and who understand the uh, uh, the concepts on a, a, a deeply technical level. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that gives us a great combination of, uh, of of skills and experience. We don't have any translators on the committee. Okay, that was my next question: Is uh, are there any translators on there? Uh, maybe they represent an association, or or they're just there as individual members. No, no translators. No, no translators. We do have uh, members of our committee who are members of some other committees or who have been members of other committees in the past who have been involved in, uh, in TMX, I believe, and, and with uh, some of the other language standards and localization standards out there. Hmm. Um, we, we are frequently discussing translators because that's often the most prominent place where the XLIF standard um, is, is visible to or, or uh, 
where it actually impacts real people as opposed to a piece of software. Right. Uh, so we, we do very much have, have translators in mind as we're developing the standard. That said, uh, uh, the standard is a um, is under the aegis of the Oasis Open organization, and anybody can join. Individual membership is several hundred dollars. A corporate membership costs noticeably more, of course, but uh, you can join any committee uh, based on your interest. So anybody who, who feels that they want to make their voice known or who feels that they can make a contribution to the development of the standard, um, you can you can definitely look into that. I'm actually an individual member myself, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I pay out of pocket to be a member of the committee and to uh, uh, to be involved in the standard. Right, right. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, getting some translators on the on the standard. Um, so let's let's go ahead and shift gears um, a little bit here because uh, so XLeaf 2.0, like you said, it it it's something that would really stand to benefit translators. Um, so let's go into some of the nuts and bolts of XLeaf 2.0 and talk about um, how really it would it would benefit translators because it, it it it's crazy how awesome the world would be if if everyone was on XLeaf 2.0 for the translator. Um, so uh, okay, so I was going to take us through the extraction, enriching, uh, modifying, and 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 merging thing. Um, let's go ahead and and let's just summarize extraction, enriching, modifying, and merging, um, and and how XLeaf 2.0 uh, works uh, in each major phase of the of a, of a project. Okay, well in. In general, just the the, uh, the high level view of what XLIF is all about is it's file format for exchanging information, and it does not matter where that information is coming from. It could be from HTML files, it could be from Microsoft Word files, it could be from a database, uh, it could be literally anything. Um, XLIF is a standard. Uh, markup language for capturing that information and providing it to the localization processors, including translators. Um, so we have at the start of the process um, an, an extractor, uh, which is a process. It's not not actually a person. It's a process that takes the source information, say a Microsoft Word file and converts it into an XLIF file. The XLIF file has two main parts, source and target, and when we initially extract it, we have the source. It's the translators who provide the target. Um, So an agent is just a very general term for for some of the uh, processes that we're, we're talking about here. So just about anybody or anything can be an agent. So you have the extractor, um, you have a merging agent or a, a uh, merge agent that deals with the target content in that XLIF file and converts it from its XLIF format into a Microsoft Word file again or database files or what, wherever the, uh, um, the translated content needs to go. Right. So that, that's primarily the... Uh, uh, the main role. So, so you have a modifier 
which sits in between the extraction and the merge mm -hmm. uh, modifier modifies the file in some way. And that could be translation. It could be mm -hmm. uh, somebody doing annotation. Yeah, editing, sort of editing the so, file and, and writing notes. Right. And enrichment uh, would, I, I assume, mostly refer to um, applying, for example, a translation memory to the file or other other metadata, things like that. Right. When we, we talk about modules, there's a, a specific module that uh, is called translation candidates. So if we're extracting information from the translation memory, we store it in markup in the translation candidates module and make that information available to a translator. So there's, uh, there's information there that uh, uh, an enricher would provide to uh, to make the pro the whole process more efficient. Right. So um, just to summarize the the translation candidates module and and this extraction and and enriching and merging stuff um, <clears throat> um, for translators, uh, when someone uh, extracts uh, the XLE file and applies a translation memory to it, the translation memory matches are actually stored within the XLEAF 2.0 file together with any additional information or comments uh, on individual segments or information about the translation memory matches, their similarity, and it's all stored within the XLEAF 2.0 document itself. So you could be at home working in whichever tool you prefer. Uh, you could receive this XLEAF 2.0 file, just one file. Uh, and it can have all the translation memory matches, machine translation matches, notes, annotations right inside of it. Um, you can modify it or edit it and send it back or send it to anyone who has a compatible tool. And they will also be able to open the file. Uh, now, the only thing I think that's interesting um, in terms of this, of how open it is, is that uh, it should be merged by the more mo most likely by the the party that made the extraction right because the it, yeah in general yes it's going back into whatever system or whatever format it was created from yeah that's that's usually the case right so i so e even though it could be interchanged several times when it comes down to the final moment of uh, rebuilding the original file with the with the target language, um, it would most likely get sent back to whoever made it. Uh, right. So as a translator, don't need to worry about getting the formatting right in Microsoft Word or dealing with uh, HTML tags or any of those sorts of things. You see the content, you get to work on the content, and you don't have to worry about what else may be going on in the background. Right. And can a translator apply their own translation memory to an XLEAF 2.0 file, uh, even if it's been already uh, enriched with someone else's translation memory? Uh, it depends on the capabilities of their CAT tool right. or, or uh, whatever else they're using, but they should be able to do exactly that. Cool. So um, let's move on and talk a little bit about the glossary module. Um, because okay. the okay, so we're already storing all this translation memory data right inside of the XLEAF. The translator is getting one single file. They can work in any tool that they want. Uh, but then it's like, okay, okay, this this company or this business or this end customer has a glossary. Um, now, if I understand it right, 
Xleaf 2.0 allows you to actually put simple glossary entries right into the Xleaf document. Is that is that correct? And how does it work? Yes. Um, the way it would work is if you have if, if an organization has a um, a glossary of terms, and in particular terms that have already been translated. Uh, in, in many industries, there is very specific nomenclature that they use, very specific terminology, and getting the translation of that terminology exactly and precisely right is, is very important to them. Uh, so they can provide that information once it's, once it's been done one time. Uh, they can provide that as, as part of the glossary module and inform the translator uh, these are the, the mappings when you see these key terms. Um, these are the approved translations that uh, uh, that we want to use. Right. So then, then I presume that the translator working in their tool of choice, uh, when they're translating, those, those glossary entries would uh, appear in some shape or form uh, wherever, wherever there's a match uh, to a glossary right. entry. Yes. Again, depending on how it's implemented in the particular cat. Right. Right. But that's uh, so, that's pretty 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 amazing stuff when you think about it. I mean, the glossary uh, coming right with the file, uh, right inside of it. It's it's groundbreaking, actually. Yeah. It's it's one of those uh, features, and and this is this is a good point, I think, to talk about how some of these features come about. The the, uh, the modules there was. Um, a great deal of discussion about how exactly to implement this module. And there were uh, some proposals on the table uh, that that basically would have made it much more elaborate than it is. Mm. Uh, and we chose for a variety of reasons uh, not to implement that, at least not at this point. And there may at some point in the future be an enhanced glossary module um, that, that, uh, is either backwards compatible with this one or is a, a different form of a glossary module. Uh, all of those things are, are possible, but uh, you know, we spend a great deal of time talking about the, the feature and how it would be implemented and how it would benefit users, uh, again, particularly translators. And sometimes we talk about whether something can be implemented at all. Um, uh, we have uh, we've had ongoing discussions concerning the, the change tracking module, which can get extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, you know, in our recent update to XLIF 2.1, we tabled the discussion on that until a future version 2.2, perhaps, because there's a lot of work to be done to get that right. Right, right. Um, so, uh, so let's skip ahead and, and mention that because uh, uh, let's see here in my notes. Uh, I wrote, the change tracking module looks fascinating to me. When I first saw it, I thought XLEAF 2.0 seriously includes a change tracking module. Holy crap, how does it work? <laughs> uh, <so> <laughs> it, it, it really depends on, uh, on how it's implemented. It, it's a, a, just a basic mechanism that uh, allows you to create revisions of any particular structure, um, within the XLIF document. So you can, um, for example, if, if a document passes through the hands of multiple translators for, for different reasons, you can track the revisions between them. Uh, you know, if you have somebody 
who's doing editorial review of a translation, for example. So you can yeah, which happens all the, the time. You, you can retain the original translation and also right. Yeah, um, but you, you can retain what the editor has done as well, and um, you know, hand that off to a referee to decide any debate between them. I suppose. Um, it's it's a fairly basic mechanism, and because of the way some of the things in Nextlif are structured, it can get very very difficult to to actually do a good implementation of this. You could have multiple revisions of just a subset of a particular sentence, or, you know, um, something like that, and and how you show that to a user of the system uh, can. Be, can be uh, pretty challenging. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, uh, especially as documents can change hands uh, several times. Um, wow. Uh, did you ever, wow, well, can, can you just track the last change? Would that be easier or or would that be equally complicated? I would be, I think it would be equally complicated. You, you have the, the same sort of issues. Um, Internally, and without getting too technical in all of this, there is uh, the issue of segmentation, how you, you identify uh, segments of content that are, are being processed. And it could be a paragraph or it could be a sentence. It could be phrases within a sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each of those segments would be subject to revision in a variety of ways and perhaps uh, multiple uh, levels of revisions. So depending on, on what your business requirements are or how much of that history you need to track, I suppose it's possible that you can capture only the last revision, mm-hmm. um, you know, using the mechanisms that are already there and, and keep it that simple. But um, uh, if any organization needs to keep track of the entire revision history, um, you know, and say you, you make a revision to a phrase within a sentence and then someone else makes a revision to other parts of that same sentence. Um, now you have different versions of different versions mm. of that original. So it gets, it gets a little bit challenging. Right. Right. To, to present that to the user in a meaningful way. Yeah. But it is impressive. Uh, and, uh, and it, I, I think it's, uh, it, this, the scope of XLeaf 2.0 is, is quite ambitious, uh, and, uh, and that's a good thing, I think. Um, so I, having a change tracking module right in the XLeaf 2.0 document would be, wow. I mean, if it worked, it would be really something, you know. Um, but even, I mean, even, even if people didn't implement, because these modules are, uh, like we mentioned earlier, they're optional. So it's, it's you know, the, the vendors of the, of the translation tools don't need to build a change tracking module using XLeaf 2.0. Um, they, they can just use the rest of the, of, of the standard if they want to. Um, right. Wow. Wow. So, you know, in, in, you know, relating to some of these more exotic uh, parts of XLeaf uh, 2.0, I also saw that there's a uh, preview, uh, a preview uh, function where, where you can have uh, some basic HTML tags uh, or some basic tags that would allow the translator to generate a, a quick preview of, of the file. And I, I was wondering if you could explain uh, where XLeaf 2.0 is at in terms of that uh, that that preview module. 
Um, the, yeah, the preview module, the format format style module. Right, right. Uh, it predefines uh, for all of the tags or for many of the tags in the XLIF structure, it predefines a corresponding HTML tag. So we can very easily generate an HTML version of an XLIF file. Uh, and this is another, uh, I'm going to keep saying the same thing, Robert. Mm -hmm. It depends on how vendors implement that sort of thing. But uh, ideally, you'd be working in your cat tool or wherever and be able to click on a button and see an HTML preview in your web browser of what you've been working on with a lot of the, the um, structural and technical underpinnings of it hidden from view so that you're seeing primarily the content with uh, you know some reasonable formatting um, you know in, in a seeing it in a context separate like that um, uh, can can sometimes be very useful right right and it, and it kind of harks back to what you were saying earlier about uh, uh, some of these vendors and how they how they can compete with each other by implementing Xleaf 2.0 um, there that's a great example of something that they could be uh, competing on right like uh, oh we've got the very first uh, implementation of the format style module in Xleaf 2.0 where we're the best uh, this is one of those modules that should be relatively easy for vendors to implement as well. Uh, it's, it's a basic utility. The mappings are all there as part of the standard. So it's just a question of, of taking the XLIF content, creating a version of it with the HTML mappings and making it accessible to a, a browser. It should be, it should be almost, um, I don't want to say simple because I've done programming projects before, and mm -hmm. uh, but it should be fairly straightforward to implement something like that. And I would hope to see most of the vendors supporting that kind of feature. Right, right. Yeah, I did notice that that you know because if you looked at the list of tags um, for anyone out there, you can read the standard. It's online at uh, on the Oasis site. Just look up XLeaf 2.0 and you'll find it. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, if you read over the tags, I mean, they're, they're not, uh, crazy, uh, exotic things, you know, we're, we're mostly talking about like headings and tables and, um, you know, paragraphs and titles. And, uh, it's like you said, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be crazy difficult to, to implement the format style module or the, the, the preview module as I call right. it. So, so what we're trying to accomplish with this is, uh, if, if the source document was was HTML and we create an XLIF container for the HTML content, and then we use the format style preview, it's not likely to look like the original source, but it will look readable. It'll be structured you know, in a way that makes sense. Tables will look like tables. Headings will look like headings and they'll follow the same hierarchy and they may not look like the original HTML, but it should be recognizable. Yeah, it, I mean, it's helpful. Uh, even if you were translating, uh, I don't know, let's say you're translating a web page, uh, if, you know, if, if part of your content displays uh, just sort of like on lines, um, but as, as long as you can see your headings and you can sort of get an idea of how they look, uh, I think that's already pretty valuable personally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as a, as far as a, a quick preview is concerned, 
being able to encode that within an xleaf file is that's that's pretty cool well um so what what would be the which module would be the hardest one for a tool vendor to implement then i would guess it would be the change tracking module or is it is it a different one um in your change, estimation change tracking could be could be pretty difficult i think um there are some others there's the, the validation module in particular uh requires something like regular expression processing um so, so I could I could see that potentially being difficult. That, basic, just a, a quick summary of the validation module. It allows you to specify, um, for example, terms that must be in the translated copy or terms that cannot be in the translated copy. And in the the validation module, you get to define those kinds of rules and test to make sure that the translated version um, uh, conforms to to the rules you've made up. So since it involves regular expression processing, um, that might be one of the more difficult ones to implement. Uh, there are probably vendors out there, you know, if, if they're listening to this saying, oh, no, we got that. That's easy, you know. Um, yeah, 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 because a lot of them have already built it uh, for whatever, well, in, the, in their current proprietary systems. So uh, I imagine that they could adopt some of the things they've already done to to the XLEAF 2.0 validation schema. Mm -hmm. Or no, um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of any of the vendors out there. Either. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I know you can't answer that one really. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, how about the uh, inline code markers uh, in the, and, the, and the tags and stuff? Um, what's the major difference about how uh, inline markers are treated in an XLEAF 2.0 file versus uh, how they were being treated previously? Okay. Um, how they were treated previously, meaning in 1.2? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that there was much difference. Uh, I wasn't involved in XLEAF 1.2 and really don't know much right. about it, to tell you the truth. Um, because I, I joined with the XLIF 2.0 effort, um, but but the uh, the markup that's available for inline content is geared towards several several concepts. If we're working with an XML file, there's a concept called well-formedness that that basically says that um, a, a pair of tags, a start tag and an end tag, have to appear within the same container. Um, that they, they can't cross boundaries. But if you're dealing with something like Microsoft Word or even HTML, uh, you can have a, a start tag in one container and a corresponding end tag in another container. So you need to be able to trap those situations, capture that markup where it actually exists and encode it in the XLIF file. Um, so there, there's inline markup that, uh, that captures pairs when, when it's well-formed, when they're in the same container. And there's other markup that captures start codes and end codes that can appear you know almost anywhere in, in arbitrary locations so we weren't assuming that we were working with uh, a well-structured or, or well-formed xml file to begin with we're uh, we're anticipating that we could get a lot of very unexpected things um, right uh, in, in the source file and we need to be able to capture all of that markup and preserve it through the process 
Right. And and also, I suppose, uh, to to avoid the situation where the XLeaf 2.0 file gets stuck uh, at some point in the process where it can't can't be imported into the into the vendor's XLeaf 2.0 compliant tool. Right. Um, uh, re- related to that, uh, my understanding is that, um, well, okay, my understanding is pretty hairy, but uh, in terms of who does the the markup, like the, the placement of the tags uh, within the, the segment, um, a translator ca- could, uh, a company could potentially with XLE 2.0 have a translator translate um, and then have them send it to somewhere else where they would import it into their own XLeaf compliant tool, XLeaf 2.0 compliant tool, and then they could add the tags. Uh, so so the, the translator doesn't have to immediately add the tags in order to, uh, to let this file be correctly imported into another tool. Is that, is that true, or did I make that up? It, in, in most cases, the translator isn't going to be dealing with the tags at all. The tags form boundaries in the case of um, blocks of content um, mm. tags identify the start and end of that block of content this, this segment codes um, uh, in most cases translators pass them through um, unchanged the tool right right ah okay okay I understand um, so uh, what wh- what's the formal term for the part of the code that refers to formatting so for example bold text or italics um, those those would be inline codes. Ah, oh, those are also inline codes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, what I was referring to was the the placement of the inline codes in the target text. Um, so if there was, if there were like some uh, some you know text that needed to be bolded, um, the the translator can place the tags where they belong. Uh, or they can send it to the next people who, who then they place the tags where they belong. And that's okay, right? Well, yeah. In the ideal situation, you will have codes that identify the start and end of a, a segment that's, uh, that needs to appear in bold. And mm-hmm. that segment by itself will be translated. It may be a title. It may be a phrase within a sentence or, or, or something of that sort. But that mm-hmm. will be translated in place. And and the um, the start and end codes will stay where they were, so that, right. that segment exists within a larger segment. Right, right, yeah, and uh, and you can also, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, uh, I thought this was rocking cool uh, that you can split uh, a tag. Um, so, for example, uh, the the example in the uh, in the standard was. Uh, uh, a word in in Swedish that were it was two words together and they were bolded, um, but in English um, you would uh, bold one word, put a, a conjunction uh, like and, and then bold right. the next word. So you could actually split the bold tags uh, and be totally compliant within the world of Exleaf. Uh, I thought that was a very detailed uh, addition, and uh, and and it, it, that is the case, right? Yes, you can, for example, if you have a, and this is a contrived example to be sure, but if you have a, um, a verb in English that is uh, two words, has been, uh, you know, or uh, I really should have a better example to, to throw out there, but if, if you translate it into another language, say German, and part of the verb appears in the middle of the sentence and part of it appears at the end, mm-hmm. um, 
Uh, and, and I'm not sure that, that that's a good example, but if you really needed to, um, to put that verb in bold or italics, um, you would need to be able to encode both parts of the verb when they appear somewhere else in the sentence um, mm -hmm. in translated copy. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. I, I think that's a really cool feature, uh, really. And, you know, speaking of examples, uh, trying to find examples, uh, I, I, I think that there are some of the most melancholic examples uh, written for any standards committee anywhere. Uh, and I, I copied this out of the standard. There's one in there that goes, he is my friend, he is my best friend, yet I barely see him. <laughs> uh, it's just an example of the source and target text. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's really, uh, that's really moving and <laughs> quite cool. <laughs> um, I don't, don't remember who wrote that one. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but it was, it was interesting. <laughs> uh okay so so let's go ahead and uh and just sort of summarize briefly here uh where we're at um and then we and then let's go back to that conversation about incentives and and adoption and stuff uh so the xleaf 2.0 standard allows people to put the uh translation uh the translation memory matches and all the information related to that directly into the xleaf 2.0 file uh, it would allow people to create a uh, preview or, you know, the format style module so you could see a quick preview of the thing you're translating. Um, companies can put their glossary in there to try to, uh, to help the translators make sure they're conforming to uh, their style guide. Um, it includes the potential for a change tracking module so you could see the, all the prior changes uh, that had been made and, and, and who made them too, right? Um, right. it handles, uh, tags in several very clever ways. Uh, it allows you to, uh, enrich the XLeaf 2.0 file with your own translation memory. Uh, even if someone else had already enriched the file with their translation memory. Um, we haven't mentioned this one yet, but it allows you to reorder segments. So if you need to, uh, change the order of segments for any reason, um, it's also possible. Uh, and it would basically allow translators, if your tool, the one that you are using, uh, was XLeaf 2.0 compliant, uh, it would allow you to use your own tool for all the jobs you receive um, because it's an interchange format and that's exactly why it exists. Right. So uh, for all the translators out there, uh, maybe uh, it would be a really cool idea to start hitting the forum boards and discussion boards at your local tool provider uh, and uh, and ask them, hey guys, uh, XLeaf 2.0 looks pretty awesome. Uh, it's been around since 2014. Uh, and, oh, XLeaf 2.1, sorry. Uh, so maybe, maybe we can start getting started on that. Uh, so let's talk about incentives and adoption. Um, so let's go back. What, what, what do you think are the major incentives for the, the tools vendors, uh, to adopt XLeaf 2.0? Like, like if they all did it, let's, let's say, let's, let's put it this way. If all the tools vendors adopted XLeaf 2.0 tomorrow, all at the same time, uh, what, what would the world look like and what, what incentives would they have to do that? Well, one of the difficulties, of course, is that many vendors see a disincentive for doing that. But in that idealized scenario, 
you would be able to interchange um, an XLIF file between any combination of products. So no matter who your um, uh, who, who provides your CAT tool, and no matter what system uh, it's coming from uh, or going into in the end, or, or what other processes may be tacked onto the whole localization effort, uh, you would know that that XLIF file would serve all of those needs throughout the entire process. Uh, right. And, you know, with, without regard to what vendor or what product uh, is, is actually dealing with it. Now, that's not entirely the case because, again, some of those modules are optional. But, um, you know, you get the idea that, that in the best of all worlds, uh, we no longer have a situation where, where you feel locked into a particular vendor or a particular approach or a particular file format for handling these kinds of processes. You have an open system that, um, you know, an open architecture that supports the entire process from beginning to end. Right. And uh, so translators, I, th I think all the translators listening know that they get locked in um, or feel locked in. And, you know, uh, what's funny for translators, too, is that sometimes uh, being locked in means using a cloud, a cloud tool. Um, so a lot of translators uh, are using, uh, you know, say, three, four or five different tools, depending on the who they're taking the job from. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll use their own tools, but sometimes they'll log in and use the provider's tools. Um, I've heard a lot of complaints from translators about that because, you know, having four or five different workspaces can be kind of, uh, kind of grating, I think. Right. Um, so I think translators understand pretty well, uh, the, the sensation of being locked in. Um, how could you, could you describe how maybe businesses on the, on the other side of the equation who are purchasing translations and need to localize their content, how do some of those characters feel locked in? Well, in, in many of the same ways, if you have a particular content management system, for example, that you're using to, uh, to store and, and manage the editorial process, the, the content creation process, um, that particular content management vendor may have their own approach to how they're going to handle translation and, and localization efforts. Um, and once you have made the investment in a system like that, and it's a you know fairly substantial investment. We're talking six figures and more um, uh, in U.S. dollars. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in many cases. Uh, the vendor doesn't want to give up that that customer, and mm -hmm. the the customer doesn't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars more to have to to uh, migrate to a new environment in order to right. break those bonds. Um, as a result of that, the, the the customer feels very locked in, in in that kind of situation. They'll tolerate uh, less than ideal um, uh, service and support, or they'll they'll tolerate features that are are not um, uh, not completely what they need because the cost of the alternative is much too high. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, that on one hand we have the the businesses, and then on the other hand we have the translators, and they're on distant ends of the spectrum, uh, and yet they both are getting locked in 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 very similar ways. Translators get locked in with tools, uh, and uh, and businesses get locked in with providers. Right. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, so how about uh, the providers? Like, uh, I guess that there are there are some providers who are closely or tightly integrated with businesses out there, um, where they're making these. You know, the businesses are making six figure investments to to integrate with with those uh, providers. Um, but how about all the other providers? Um, are they locked in? Like, if if you're a let's say you're a smaller uh, LSP. Um, and you're not really, uh, you know, doing those kinds of integrations with, with other companies. Um, how, how are those people affected by XLEAF 2.0? I think, um, uh, let me put on the, the, uh, the guise of a company that is developing software, a small company that's developing a new software product that works in this market um, that that deals with localization and and translation. I would look at something like XLIF and think, okay, a lot of the hard work has been done here. I don't need to figure out my own proprietary approach here. I I can use this open standard. It doesn't cost me anything to to access the standard and uh, you know, I'm free to implement it. I don't owe anybody any royalties, um, you know, and, and that saves me a lot of t- money and time and effort in terms of uh, scoping out requirements and um, doing proprietary development and trying to lock people in. So I, right. I think there's, there's an aspect there that, um, that at least to me would be attractive. I may have my biases because I've been working <laughs> standards for so long. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I would think, and especially with the open software movement. Um, That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. It just makes the world go around that much faster. In yeah. A way. With, with, with open, sta- open software, people like open standards. And uh, if, so if you're, if you're thinking about, making your software open source, then you're going to look at something like XLIF if it's if it's at all relevant uh, and, and say, let me build support for this into my, my system rather than trying to do something proprietary. Right, right. That, that's the um, world. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, actually, uh, one of my questions up above was, uh, do you believe in utopia? <laughs> <laughs> I believe in the concept. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I haven't seen anything approaching it in reality. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I imagine that things get pretty hairy on the committee um, from time to time. So um, in terms of uh, translators joining the committee, um, how do you become a voting member? Like if a translator wanted to actually vote on the standard, uh, how, how would they do that? Um, our standards for voting are tied to meeting attendance. Uh, mm-hmm. So after a certain number of meetings, I forget it's two or three, uh, you become a voting member of the committee. If you miss, um, sorry, if you miss one or two meetings, then you lose your voting rights at least temporarily. So okay. by, by regularly attending the meetings, you maintain your, your status as a voting member. Are the meetings online or are they physical meetings? No, they're online. We meet every, we meet the second, the first and third Tuesday of each month. Um, first and third Tuesday. 
and we have we have some some it, it's possible to be an observer as well if you're not interested in actually um, participating in the debate and discussion but just tracking what the committee is doing uh, you can sign up for for mailing lists and, and follow us that way um, uh, you can you can join the meetings without ever saying a word which Believe me, early on, I didn't. I didn't say much. I still don't say a whole lot because there's there's some really really bright people in the room um, that that, uh, that deal with this on a very technical level, and uh, we we get into some very lively discussions. It occasionally gets a little bit heated, but I mean we're all very civil, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we we reach compromises or we we have a majority vote and. In general, people simply move on if they, you know, if they don't like the outcome of the vote, they, you know, they, they continue to participate and, and uh, contribute constructively in other ways. Um, and, and it's all very constructive. I wish the U.S. Congress would learn that. Um, yeah, yeah. Compromise. <laughs> compromise <laughs> once in a while. Hey, guys, you know, it works. We've, we've seen it work in, in, you know, granted it's a relatively small committee, but, um, you know, we 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 talk through the issues we deal with them on a, a deeply technical level we have some some very high level intense debates we have some debates that go on over our our mailing list um you know when we when we have to detail a lot of, of um, uh, technical things or we have a lot of examples that we want to to express that don't work so well in a teleconference uh so you know we have those kinds of discussions we go back and forth People contribute or not, depending on their level of interest or expertise in these things. And um, you know, we we eventually reach a consensus and we move forward. Yeah. And uh, what do you think that translators could uh, add to this process if if I, they were to join the committee? I think first and foremost uh, would be the specific perspective. As I said before, we don't have a translator on the committee right now. We do have translators in mind as we're developing things because we know that that that's really the, the, the place where Exlif uh, most directly interacts with people or vice versa. Um, and so we're, we're constantly talking about um, what the translator's role is and, and how they're going to interact with a particular feature or, or how it works for them or, or helps or doesn't help. Uh, but a translator could give us that perspective much more directly. Uh, second, I think translators have uh, a unique set of experiences with the particular tools that they work with, uh, but also with some of the issues and problems that they face that uh, we may understand in theory, but we may not, um, you know, we may not have the full comprehension of how uh, important specific issues are to, to translators. So they could provide us with that kind of perspective. Um, so, so being involved in the committee could give us a lot of that kind of feedback, a lot of useful interaction, uh, commenting on our mailing list, um, XLIF one point, I'm sorry, I did it again. XLIF 2.1, um, <laughs> will be out. For, uh, it, it's a candidate standard right now. And, 
Um, we've we've been soliciting comments on that. But as each version of the standard uh, is released, if you're a subscriber to the mailing list, you get notification of that, and you can comment on features that you see that that uh, uh, you have questions about or concerns about. Uh, all of those perspectives are very valuable in in making the standard stronger and more flexible in in future iterations. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder if there isn't also a value of having translators there just almost almost just as sort of uh, observers. Um, it, it, it just seems like a good idea to me. Uh, there's some really big big companies uh, that are on the the committee. Uh, you know, I'm just looking at the list here. I mean, um, some some familiar associations are there, like Gala. Um, but then there's also really big companies like Microsoft is there, Oracle is there, um, some open source companies like Red Hat. Um, I'm looking at strictly the, the, well, yeah, just the company list here. Um, so yeah, having translators there just to, just almost, almost just to see what's, what's going on, uh, would be interesting. I, I think also having maybe some translators associations, uh, like for example, the American Translators Association is quite, quite large. Um, and when you think about it, it's kind of surprising. They don't have a, they don't have someone representing the association on the, on the, uh, on the committee. But uh, okay, well, I think that's something to work towards. Um, I think that uh, Zingword, uh, we have quite a sizable mailing list of translators, and I think our very next mailing is going to be, hey, <laughs> this is the instructions to join the the committee. Um, so uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be a disaster. Maybe there'll be like 200 translators joining your committee. And it, it <laughs> but uh, I, I think yeah. it's worth to to put it out there, um, see see if anyone wants to, to join. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Sure. There's there's lots of ways they can be involved. If if not as a, an active member of the committee, then as an observer or uh, mm -hmm. comment, commenting on uh, through the mailing list. Uh, uh, all that feedback adds value. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've covered it pretty good. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, I hope that everyone else is listening has also uh, been able to, to learn a lot. Um, so we really appreciate uh, you coming on the show, and uh, and uh, I hope that uh, hope that you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I appreciate it. I uh, enjoyed being part of this. Thanks. Cool.